Well, good morning, Sailorville Church. If you have your Bibles or your digital device of choice, you can head to the book of 2 Timothy. That's where we're going to land in a few minutes. But first, just a little bit more introduction. As Jason mentioned, my family goes here to Sailorville. Uh, my wife, Terry, as he said, helps out with the counseling team. Our youngest daughter, Katie, is part of the Rise Up ministry, where I think she may be the largest Pastor Paul fan in the entire metro area. And my oldest daughter, Allison, works at a uh, gospel-based youth ministry in Des Moines. As for myself, I help out with the discipleship team, but I would say, if I had to describe myself, I would say I'm a storyteller. I went to work the day after I graduated from high school as a newspaper reporter. And ever since then, I've been telling stories in newspapers, magazines, marketing organizations, all along. But that entire time, I've always felt like God was tapping me on the shoulder just a little bit, saying, before long, my story is going to be a bigger part of what you do. Now, a lot of you know the famous Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, or as Pastor Pat calls him, the Spurge. And it is some of Spurgeon's words that have been hanging with me for a long time. There's Spurgeon in bobblehead form, and this is what he said. If any student in this room could be content to be a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. If you can be content to do anything else, don't enter the ministry. Now, I just discovered recently there was actually one more thing I left out of that quote. I'm not making this up. This is what Spurgeon actually started that quote with. If you can be content to be a newspaper editor, go your way. Well, I never have been quite content there. So um, I am here with you today. I'm actually taking seminary classes now, and I'm seeing where God will lead this. And as part of that, it is a tremendous honor that I get to be with you this morning, looking in to the Word of God. Now, if you tell a room full of people that you're a storyteller, well, then you should probably tell them one that's not about yourself. So let's talk about the story of a man named Hokan who went for a walk one day in the jungle in 1991. He lived on the border of Laos and Cambodia. He was a logger. And he was out looking around in the jungle for a place that he could find some trees to harvest. And he heard a strange sound. It struck him as the sound of air whistling through a tight spot. And as he looked around in the jungle, he saw a hole in the ground. And he looked down into it, and he saw what looked like a very steep, very big cave. He could hear a river gurgling down there. He could actually see clouds drifting by, this hole in the ground. And he decided it was too dangerous to go in, so he went home. And he never quit thinking about what he saw through that window into the earth. But the problem was, he could never find it again. So he spent years trying to find his way back. And finally, 17 years later, in 2008, he rediscovered the spot. The next year, he had spread the word. The British Cave Research Association came out to look at what he had seen, and they found something astounding. What is known today as the Sundong Cavern is the largest cave on the face of the earth. It is about five and a half miles long under the ground. Parts of the roof are 660 feet high. There is one stalagmite, that's the kind that comes from the bottom, that's as big as the Statue of Liberty. Parts of the roof have collapsed, as you can see here, that has allowed terrestrial animals like monkeys to have an entire habitat in there. There are clouds that drift by just like he saw. And the depths of Sundong Cave will probably never be known as they keep discovering new parts of it. Well, this cavern has a lot to do with what we're talking about today because just like that cavern, we all have something right at our fingertips, right under our feet, that most of us have probably never fully explored. And we're talking, of course, about the Word of God. 
Now, a lot of you have just realized this is a sermon about reading your Bible more. And you might be thinking, yep, I know the answer to that quiz. I've heard this one before. Time to start thinking about what I'm going to do this afternoon. Because if you've been going to a church like Sailorville, you probably have people all the time saying, how's your Bible reading going? How are your devotions? You've probably even taken a shot at reading through the Bible in a year at some point and run aground on that rocky shore of Leviticus or Numbers sometime in the early part of the year and, and run out of gas. If we took a survey this morning, I would imagine most of us would agree with this statement. This came from a survey a publisher did a few years ago. I desire to please and honor Jesus in all that I do. 90% of churchgoers said, I agree with that statement. But how many people take the action step of reading their Bible every day to support their effort to do this? Survey said, 19%. So why is that? What keeps us from investing in the Bible to achieve this goal that we say we have, by and large? What keeps us from giving the Bible the same priority as our favorite sports team, our social feed, our favorite binge watch? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. We're not truly convinced it's going to make a difference. We're not convinced we need it in our life. But people who had a little more insight into Scripture didn't feel that way. People like the Apostle Paul. So let's go to 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Now, a little context. As far as we know, this is Paul's last written communication. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison, which actually was a pit in the ground, and he is counting down the days until he's going to be executed by the Roman emperor Nero. In this last letter, he's writing to his prized student, Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 through 13, Paul writes this. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Now let's stop for a minute and remember who Paul was. He was a Pharisee, one of the most trained rabbinical religious leaders of his era. He was the son of a Pharisee. He had been exposed to this his entire life. It was the family business. And he had taken his training as a Pharisee from a man named Gamaliel, who was the preeminent trainer of that era. The takeaway from that there have been few people in the history of the world who knew the Old Testament as well as Paul did. Now here we are at the end for Paul. He knows he will never preach another sermon. He doesn't need to prep for that. He will never take another missions trip. There is no more prep to be done, yet what is he asking for? The books and especially the parchments. What were those? They were most likely his personal copies of the Old Testament, probably written with handwritten notes throughout from his lifetime of study. So here we are, in his final days, Paul, one of the world's leading Old Testament experts, craving more of the Word of God for encouragement and learning. Now let's be clear. Today's message is not about putting you on a guilt trip to go read the Bible more. Guilt doesn't change behavior. If you don't believe that, go to any gym in February and see how easy it is to find an open treadmill. <laughs> Our habits change when we become convinced. Convinced that our joy, our success, our peace of mind, and even our spiritual lives depend on something. So today, we're going to ask three questions. Are you convinced of three things about the Word of God? Are you convinced that all of the Bible deserves our attention? Are you convinced it's your personal lifeline? And are you convinced that God is waiting to see how you're going to respond?
So let's start with our first point. You know, I love my mom. I loved my mom when I was a teenager, but I especially loved it when my mom was gone on a weeknight because to this day, my dad will struggle to boil water if you give him a microwave. So when my mom was gone, that was good news because that meant my dad would load my brother and I up in the car and we'd head to Hy-Vee. And back then, Hy-Vee had just started serving hot prepared food. It was exciting. We'd go through the line. He'd plunk down $6.99. We'd get our plate and we'd head off. If you wanted Chinese food, you could go to the left. You wanted Italian food, you could go to the middle. You wanted American comfort food, you went to the right. And we'd all meet back up in a cafe booth with the results of our individual expedition. And if you asked every one of us the next day, what'd you have for dinner last night? Every one of us would have said, well, you did high V. Yet none of us had re remotely the same meal. And unfortunately, this is how a lot of people approach the Bible. Have you ever met someone who loves to talk about how God supplies all our needs, but doesn't like to talk about the part where he says if you have an extra coat, you should give it to someone to supply their need? Have you ever met someone who likes to talk about all the judgment that's going to rain down on sinners in Revelation, but they don't like to talk about the part where we're loving our neighbor up until then? God's word is not a spiritual food court where we get to pick and choose the part that we want. This is not a collection of random books that some publisher put under one cover. This is a single book that was written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors. Did you know that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament more than 300 times? Let's look at this graphic. What you're looking at here, down along the bottom there, every single one of those white lines is a chapter in the Bible. You can see Psalm 119, the big one, hanging out right there in the middle. Every line in this image is a connecting reference from one passage to another, back and forth throughout the Bible. There are about 64,000 of them represented in this image. This was created by a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon University and a pastor in Germany. When you look at this graphic, do you think you can pull part of that out and it will still work? It is all interconnected. One of the best places to see this in action is the book of Hebrews. No book in the New Testament devotes as much of its space to the Old Testament as Hebrews does. About 15% of it is direct quotes from the Old Testament. And it's hard to find a single verse in Hebrews that does not allude in some form to the Old Testament. And Hebrews barely gets out of the gate before it starts doing this. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So pay attention to what's happening here. When the author of Hebrews decides to tell Christ's story, he doesn't start in Bethlehem. He doesn't start with Abraham and the beginning of the people of Israel. He starts at the creation of the cosmos. He's connecting Christ to the entire meta-narrative of the universe and of human history. This is why the commentator Albert Moeller said, we cannot divorce Christ from the Old Testament and truly understand him. The rest of the book of Hebrews goes on to do more of this, methodically shows how everything in the Old Testament was leading up as a signpost to understand what Christ would do. A lot of you probably have a copy of a book or a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. This came out in 1909. And in the introduction to that, Cyrus Schofield wrote this, no particular portion of scripture is to be intelligently comprehended apart from some conception of its place in the whole. For the Bible story and message is like a picture wrought out in mosaics. Now, you probably know what a mosaic is. This is that art form that's a bunch of tiny little tiles. You put it all together, you can see you're looking at an eye. You take any one of those out, like a piece of a puzzle on your 
kitchen table, it won't make any sense. This is what the scripture is like. Yet we have this constant temptation to emphasize certain parts of scripture that we like, or certain parts that are a little bit easier for us. What you're looking at here is a personal Bible that was owned by Thomas Jefferson. Do you notice how there's some pieces missing out of those pages? That's because in the early 1800s, Thomas Jefferson sat down with a scalpel and he cut out the wisdom sayings of Jesus because he decided those were the parts that were really the most important. He didn't want to talk about the miracles of Christ. And if that sounds outrageous to you, and if that sounds heretical to you, consider the way that some of us choose to approach the Bible today. Have you ever had an experience like this? I'll be reading a passage of scripture and something will hit me like a bolt of electricity. Like that could not have been there the last four or five times I read this, right? I'll even go pick up one of my old Bibles I used to read through and I flipped through like, well, it was there last time I read this. So why is it that it seems brand new to me? Part of that is because the Holy Spirit shows us different things on every trip through scripture. We're at different points in our own journey. Part of that is because we don't see what we don't want to see. Here's a classic, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The verse that has launched a thousand athletes into competition to go out and win the title. Well, a while ago, I discovered an amazing thing. Philippians 4.13 actually lives in a chapter. And the verses around it have something to say about Philippians 4.13. Here's what Paul actually says in Philippians 4.12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you're like, wait, wait a minute. I can do hardship because of Jesus? That verse isn't just about God giving me success in whatever it is that I choose to pursue. Tim Tebow's eye black never said anything about that, right? All the motivational posters didn't tell me about the hardship part of this. Well, the fact is, we tend to do this a lot with the Bible. And when you do that, you might as well sit down in your comfortable chair with the Bible in one hand and a scalpel in the other, because you are going the full Jefferson if you start taking parts of the Bible apart to suit yourself. We skip over the demands that Christ puts on us in things like Philippians 4.12, telling us it costs something to follow him. We will talk loudly about the sins in our society that we don't like, and we'll read right over the verses that want to convict us about our own envy and gossip and grudge holding and lack of love for our neighbors. Are you convinced that unless we look at the entire scope of the Bible, we will never reach the full depths of its messages? Let's go to our second point. And let's look at Paul's last letter again in 2 Timothy. He's writing this to his prized student, Timothy, and it's important that we know a little bit about Timothy. In the early verses of 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that he saw a sincere faith in Timothy's mother and grandmother. So Timothy's entire life has included scripture. And now as Paul is heading toward the end of this letter, he lays out some high expectations for Timothy. He says in 3 verse 17 that he expects Timothy to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In chapter 4 verse 1, Paul tells Timothy to be a faithful preacher in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. That's a high commission. How is Timothy going to live up to that? Paul gives the answer in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. He says this, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So for a young star of the pastoral ranks who's been exposed to Scripture his entire life, what is the key for him to keep getting better spiritually? Go back to the Scripture again and again and again. Well, the great teachers of our era continue to discover the same thing. Some of you might know the name of Wayne Grudem. He's uh, one of the top theologians alive today. He's written a lot of books that a lot of people here at Sailorville hold in high regard. And a few years ago, I heard a sermon Wayne Grudem gave that has always stuck with me, which is appropriate considering it was part of a series called Best Sermon Ever. And in this sermon, he talked about how he was part of the team that was translating the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV, which a lot of you probably have. It's the one we're quoting this morning. He was with a bunch of scholars who would spend all day looking into the Hebrew and the Greek and deciding how best to translate that into English. So day after day, they had their nose in the original languages of the Bible. And Grudem tells the story about how the days were getting long, and he made an important decision. We're going to listen to what he says about that. We go back to our room, and we spend some time together, and I get all that personal stuff done and get to bed. And the nights were getting shorter and shorter. And I was getting more and more tired. So I decided, what difference does it make? I set my alarm a half hour later, and I said, you know, I'm spending so much time reading the Bible already with these other guys, 12 hour, or eight hours a day. Why do I need to get up early and spend time alone with God, reading the Bible and praying and asking God to apply the word to my own heart? So I let it go. Three days, four days. And then... Margaret said, Wayne, something's just not right with you. What's going on? And then I realized I neglected my time with God, and my heart was straining. So I made a note that I kind of carry around just to remind myself. Results of missing personal Bible reading and prayer time. Pride. Talking about myself a lot. Often inwardly hoping people will praise me. Lack of love for friends. Irritability. Relationships with friends just stall or put on hold. General inward feeling of unease, unsettledness. Hard to concentrate on scripture and prayer. Self-reliance, no peace. I just say, Margaret, I'm sorry. Here's what's happened. I just... I. I wasn't spending time with the Lord. And I had to go to God privately and say, God, I'm sorry, I didn't put you first. And the next morning when the committee met, I asked if I could have a couple of minutes just to say what had happened. I said, look, I'm sorry if you've noticed something wrong in my attitude the last several days. This is the reason, I'm sorry. We go back to our room and we spend some time together and I get all that personal stuff done and get to bed. And the nights were getting shorter and shorter. And I was getting more and more tired. So I decided, what difference does it? Okay. So here we have someone who knows the Bible better than almost anyone else alive. And he's telling us that his heart and soul go rapidly downhill if he is not spending time in the Word, studying in a way that he wants God to speak to him. So have we grasped our point yet? Let's review what we've seen. Paul is a biblical scholar who's just days away from dying and the solution is, read more scripture. Timothy is in the prime of life, and the solution is, read more scripture. Jesus, when he faced temptation from Satan himself, the solution was, 
quote more scripture. We live in a completely whacked out 2020 full of pandemics and stress and disasters everywhere we look and we often think the solution is more social media, more binge watch. Now at this point, you might be thinking, well those are all apostles, those are theologians, they're professionals. Of course they're gonna spend that kind of time on it. Well why don't we hear from some people a little bit more like us. A few years ago, I got the chance to go to India, and we were part of church conferences where I was there to talk about what it's like to be a deacon and be a layperson in ministry. And as we traveled around all over the country to these conferences, I was blown away by the commitment these people had to Christ. Many of these people were riding trains for eight hours to get to the conference. They would sleep on grass mats out in a courtyard because that's all they couldn't afford to stay anywhere else. Many of these people lost their jobs and their families when they chose to follow Christ. I met one man who told me about his wife, who was an obstetrician. She was put out of the medical industry when she became a Christian because no hospital would let her practice, no bank would loan her money to start her own clinic. And they introduced me to one woman who, when I met her, she showed me she had scars running up and down both arms. And through a translator, she said what happened is she came home and told her husband, I've decided to follow Christ. He grabbed her by the hair and dragged her to the stove and plunged her into a vat of cooking oil to punish her for being a traitor to the Hindu faith that he followed. And I listened to these people and I thought, how do they do this? Where do they get this kind of strength? We live in America where we're gonna pipe down a little bit about Jesus if we think it might cost us a promotion or an invite to a barbecue. So why were these people getting this strength? And as I looked around, I saw some of the answer. This was a man sitting across from me. This is the Bible he had in his lap. Now look at that book threadbare, worn, marked up from years of study. And you look at that and you say, well, I've got five, six, seven Bibles at home. That's why mine doesn't look like this. Well, add all of yours together. Do they look like that? No, mine doesn't. This picture is actually hanging in my house right now. This is in the room where we keep our Bibles, for my wife and I do a lot of our reading. It's there for two reasons. One, it reminds me every day that people are suffering for Christ all over the globe. And number two, it reminds me how they do it. This is where they get the strength to carry on. So for our last point, if we took those first two points, we have the prescription for spending a lifetime of studying Scripture, all of Scripture. But if we stop now, we're like a running back who is stretching toward the goal line gets tackled at the one. We haven't gotten there yet because it does no good to simply understand the Bible. James 2.9 says even the demons do that, but they don't believe. What the Bible demands is a proper response from every one of us. Are you going to follow what you've learned in there or not? In 2 Timothy 3.5, Paul warns Timothy that there are people who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. In 3, verse 7, he says, they are always learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. And sadly, that could probably be said of a lot of us who are in this room today. We spend a lot of time sitting in sermons, a lot of time in classes. But do we ever make that crucial step to letting a true commitment to Christ overtake our hearts and change the way we live our lives? As Hebrews is heading toward its conclusion, the author begins to describe the price that will be paid if we ignore the teachings that are made clear through Scripture. In Hebrews 10, 28 through 31, he gives a sobering warning that if you thought God was tough on people in the Old Testament with all the brimstone raining down and all the smiting, 
the penalty's actually gotten higher now. Here's what it says. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible does not leave us the option of remaining a non-committal bystander. We have the entire Bible laid out in front of us. It tells us the story in Genesis of how people sinned and how we've continued to do it for every generation since. We have the Gospels showing us how Christ came down, lived a perfect life, died innocent, rose again in order to pay the price for our sin. We have the rest of the New Testament laying out for us the doctrine of how we need to understand this and live it out. God has seen our fatal illness, and he sacrificed his son. He has written in the word the prescription and the diagnosis of everything that we need. Dwight L. Moody, famous pastor, said, With an open Bible, no one need be without knowledge of God's will and purpose. God has spelled it all out. Now he's waiting to see how every single one of us is going to choose to respond. So what is your call? Are you going to do the Jefferson Bible thing? and pick and choose which parts you think apply to you and what don't? Are you going to skip your personal Bible study and turn into the ugly version of Wayne Grudem, where you're restless and irritable and self-centered? In Hebrews 2, verse 3, the Bible's winding down. It only has about 50 pages to go. And the author asks the pointed question for all of us. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The Bible has the solution for our eternal destiny, it has the solution for our day-to-day -day challenges. And if you think that last part isn't true, I would ask you, talk to our pastors. Listen to what they hear from people who do and don't make the Bible their lifeline. Talk to our counseling team. Just a few days ago, I met a young man, uh, one of our church ministries here. He was successfully battling an addiction to drugs and alcohol. He couldn't be more than 20 years old, and he'd been addicted for years. But as we were talking, he was quoting scripture. He was quoting it accurately. He was quoting it in context. He was quoting it with passion. And I was deeply moved by the way he talked. So when he got done, I said, so tell me about why Scripture has become so important to you. And I actually, just so you know, I'm quoting him exactly. I wrote this down while he was talking. Here's what he said. I grew up in church. I had heard it all before. But I had no idea how blind I was until I actually got into the Word. I never quit using drugs until I got in the word and stayed in it. I realized it really was the bread of life. Nothing else has ever satisfied me like this. Amen. This young man was living, Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. We started this morning by asking, are you really convinced of these three facts about the word? This young man needed no more convincing. He knew that the word of God was like an oxygen mask to a person struggling for air. He knew he literally was going to die without it. The Indian believers need no more convincing about the word. They know they are not going to get through the next week's persecution unless they're immersed in it. Things are going to happen this week. They always do. And because we live in 2020, you know whatever curveballs come your way are going to have some extra spin on them, right? 
So this week, when that happens, when you get worried, when you get fearful, when you begin to get angry at those around you because you're uncertain about what to do next, make the call that Paul did. Reach out to the nearest person that can hear you and say, bring me the books, especially the parchments. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this gift of a book that you have passed down to us. You've given us a glimpse into your mind and in your plan in words that the simplest of us in this room can understand. We pray that you'll help us treasure that, help us to recognize how badly we need it. Help us to get to the point where David was in Psalm 119, 24, where he said, your testimonies are my delight and my counselors. You've given us a roadmap to knowing you and the simple guidance we need to get through every day. Convince us through your spirit to want your word more every day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.